Hey everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. It's a big week, Terry. We're post-Super Bowl and also pitchers and catchers have reported to spring training, which means spring cannot be far behind. How you doing, Terry? <laughs> and you know what they do when pitchers and catchers report? What? They play catch. They do. For That's many, many hours on end. So. Yes, they do, and they have a few <laughs> other things. But I remember when I first went down to spring training, um, well, this would have been 1979 because I, I went from Savannah, Georgia, where I did double-A baseball, small colleges and all that, directly to do the Orioles. I mean, right smack dab because uh, the Baltimore Evening Sun there had just lost their writer to – the Washington Star, both papers are not gone. The writer's name is Dan Shaughnessy, by the way, who then went on to uh, oh, wow, yeah. really being a big-time writer with the uh, Boston, Globe. Boston Globe. He's in the Baseball Hall of Fame even. So anyway, Dan Dan left, and so they, they grabbed me. They needed somebody young and cheap and, and willing, and I checked all the boxes. But I went down there, and I'm excited there, and I'm like, they're playing catch and kind of doing stuff like that. And There were a few guys down there kind of taking the batting practice off of coaches, and I remember the first practice is done, and we go, well, that's it. Yep. That's it. Um, the first <laughs> – so that, well, there you go. Um, and so that was it. Now they do a lot more stuff now because of all the um, – well, first of all, a lot of these guys have been down there forever uh, in Goodyear. They didn't have these complexes uh, like they do you know, now. And it's it's a it's an ongoing twelve month concern. You know they have the Arizona Fall League, all these things. So, I mean, I've seen some video posted online. Cleveland Guardians is kind of a cool thing. I think it's Guardians prospects. It's kind of a cool. Uh, uh, I started to say Twitter or X account, and this guy gets like videos of different players working out and things like that. It's it's neat. And yeah, get to see guys swings and the whole bit. Yeah, huh? I mean, just like like, like uh, the guy they got, De La Cruz, the new guy, who's huge. But what he had is some things. They had him in the outfield catching fly balls. So I thought, oh well, maybe that's how they're going to try to figure out how to get him on the roster. So yeah. that's what you get, though. Yep. All right. Well, we got a lot to get to today, Terry. Okay. Uh, again, I'm David Campbell, the host. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from the Plain Cleveland.com. Terry, I, I'm going to leave the Browns like at the top of our list this week because we're coming off the Super Bowl. But I think, boy, we'll probably move them down from here on out until yes. uh, something else comes up because there's a lot going on with the Cavs we want to get into. The Guardians, like we said, are in spring training. Um, hey, I wanted to mention real quick, we're going to leave the survey open one more week for our podcast. We want to know what you think of what we're doing, what you think we could change. Check it out if you haven't already given us your feedback. It's at tinyurl.com slash terrysurvey24. Again, it's tinyurl.com slash terrysurvey24. So check it out. Uh, I'm going through all the responses, and then Terry and I will uh, kind of kick around some of the ideas. we got some great ones already, and love to hear from you. So all right, Terry, uh, I know you and I both didn't really go out and party hard for the Super Bowl, but we <laughs> we learned some things, I think, about what it takes to win a Super Bowl. We've seen a lot of people writing opinions this week about the Browns, and they're going to have to go through Patrick Mahomes this week. You have a column. We're taping this on Tuesday late afternoon. You have a column going up tomorrow about the Super Bowl and something that you don't want Browns fans to overlook this offseason. Why don't you talk about that for a second, and then we'll get more into it. Well, David, what was the final score? I don't even remember, but it was a three-point game, and it was lower scoring than everybody thought yeah, it was going to be. Yeah. Halftime is 10-3. to 3. I think 25-22. And 
that to me is something missing in all this. Ken Deshaun, I'll play Pat Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes, all that kind of stuff. Of course, you need a good quarterback. I mean, that's a given. But defenses ruled uh, in that game, and defense in a lot of ways helped Kansas City get to where they did, and especially winning some of those cold weather games and so on. Now, you look at what happened to the Browns when they went to Houston. The Browns gave up 24 points in the first half of that game and um, blowing coverages and all that stuff. And then Flacco put the exclamation point in a disaster with the two pick sixes in the third quarter. But my point was that we're, they're looking, they're, they're changing the offensive staff. They're going to bring other things. These guys were three and six on the road. Five of those games on the road, they gave up 30 or more points. That's a problem because you're going to play road games and you can't give up 30 or more points. And by the way, to make the underlying the point about the defenses being strong in the Super Bowl was that it was played inside in the dome. So it isn't like this was played out in cold weather, windy rain, all that stuff. Uh, each team only scored two touchdowns. Uh, San Francisco's longest play from scrimmage is like 25 yards. And by the way, field goals were big. The two kickers were seven for seven. And had the kicker for Jake Moody for San Francisco not had his extra point blocked, they possibly could have won that game in regulation. So no doubt. Special teams, defense, um, it was a pretty clean game. I think uh, I want to say there were two fumbles in it. That was about it. So what I want the Browns to do is not just say, okay, Schwartz is defensive coach of the year or the assistant coach of the year, excuse me. Um, and we got this great defense. You got a defense that still needs work. Well, and you're right, Terry. I, I've, I've seen a lot of people writing about, well, the Browns have to, any team that wants to come out of the AFC is going to have to outscore Kansas city. How about, you know, the best way to stop Patrick Mahomes is cover the guys he's trying to throw to and knock him down on every play. <laughs> like mm-hmm. those, those are the two ways to do it. And if you get a dominant defensive front and some really good defensive backs, which the Browns have and can build on, uh, you're going to be right there. Like if you can keep it in the twenties, you don't need to score 50 points. Don't you think if Kyle Shanahan knew going into that game that after four quarters, they would have only given up 22 points to Kansas city that the San Francisco coach would first of all, take it. And second of all, be already thinking about the super bowl parade. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, but they didn't. And, because I remember where the game was played. That's the thing. Like they, that game in the dome down in Houston, which I was at, it was a track meet early, and it was. I that was one of the, you know one of the most disappointing things about the whole season for me with the defense in that game. And yeah, they shaped up a little in the second half, but by then you blew it, guys. Yeah, it was over. I mean, um, what, I believe there was one uh, no sacks. One quarterback hit. This is for the Browns versus Houston. I know I'm dwelling on this, but I'm trying to make a point uh, by piling up the things. So no sacks, no turnovers, one quarterback hit. They average, Houston, average 8.1 yards per play. And it just goes – there's a couple other takeaways I think we can get into it here, but it just goes mm-hmm. to show you the preparation. You watch a Super Bowl, the two teams that are in it play such clean football, and, and Kevin Stefanski talks about playing clean football. Yeah. 
all the time. But you're right. You don't, you don't make mistakes. Like the fumbles were crazy early on, but then the quarterback play was so clean and Mm -hmm. efficient. And that's kind of the word that sticks with me. But um, one of the things that I wanted to mention real fast, I thought this was really interesting. Chris Jones, the star defensive lineman for the chiefs, just you're talking about preparation and efficiency, Terry, Chris Jones said after the game that the Chiefs talked about the new postseason, the Super Bowl postseason overtime back in training camp Hmm. and how they wanted to handle it if if a playoff game or the Super Bowl went into overtime. And he said, we knew that if we won the toss, we were going to take the ball second regardless because we knew we were going to get the ball and we if we take the ball second we know what we need to win and if they scored a touchdown and got one point on the extra point we are going to go down and score a touchdown and go for two and win the game and I'm thinking to myself why were they talking about that back in July that's incredible but again it just goes to show you the amount of preparation and efficiency that these NFL teams are working at when they're talking about things like that back in training camp talk about preparation right that was just mm-hmm. that was crazy to me to think about that. And also, um, you're a team that you, you figure at the very least you're going to the playoffs. And I think it's also laying out to your guys that this is our expectation is to be in these games, close games where this may matter. And by the way, I always would want the ball second in those situations, just because I want to know what I'm up against. Yeah, it, it makes sense. I, I just that's the kind of thing I would think about after the regular season or but um, anyway, that kind of struck me. And mm-hmm. then the other thing I wanted to get into, Terry, last week, we were talking about motion and yep. the Browns offense in 2024. And we were telling people like, hey, watch these two teams. And the winning touchdown to McCall Hardman mm-hmm. was, I, I thought, a perfect example of what we were getting into last week in terms of what the Browns might look like offensively in 2024. And it, it, I didn't think Tony Romo had a great game, but he was right on this that winning touchdown. When Hardman ran, I, I think Andy Reid called it X shuttle, like a shuttle bus going back mm-hmm. and forth. But he ran the motion from – he was flanked outright. He ran the motion in just inside Travis Kelsey – which activated the most outermost defensive back for the 49ers to pick up Travis Kelsey. Travis Kelsey now became his guy. And then when Hardman reversed course and ran back to where he had come from, it was too late for them to adjust. And that was a perfect example, I thought, on that winning play. And there were others in the game. But that one really showed how pre-snap and motion at the snap can create positional advantages. And I, I think we might be seeing more of that kind of thing from the Browns next season. What, what did you think of the, some of the motion and, and maybe that play? And do you, do you, do you see the Browns doing more of that based on what we saw in the Super Bowl? Two highly disciplined teams to do that. Let's start with that. You've got to be things that are look good on your um, iPad or however they draw these things up now. Um, it's one thing. It's another thing doing it in a playoff game or the Super Bowl where it's noisy and loud. You really have to be very, very um, attention to detail. And that's the thing about those. those. There were not a lot of stupid penalties in that game or anything else, too. Nobody lining up in the wrong spot <laughs> no. offsides. And, and, yep. that, and that motion stuff, that begs the wrong kind of motion. It begs for those illegal formations. So they, if you do it, you better be ready. Uh, 
and have guys that know what they're doing. I think they're going to try some of that. Um, I just was taken by the defense on both teams and by the discipline of both teams. You know, I know there were a couple fumbles, but I mean, once in a while that happens, but there just wasn't a lot of stupid stuff going on out there. And, but Brock Purdy's good too, boy. He really is. He's a, he's a, he's something else uh, for maybe my bars lower. You know, we're not talking about Mahomes, but he went out there and he, they had, they had to go to overtime to beat him. Yeah. And all Tony Romo was talking about was whether the game was going to be too big and he's nervous and he just went out no. and played. I mean, Tony I, I Romo, think that's the best please. version we're ever going to see of him, but <laughs> yeah, well, it's not, was not the best version of Tony Romo. I can tell you that. Was he paid by the word? <laughs> I don't know. It's a good no, question. Even Roberta kind of came in and out during it. And yeah. I mean, she just like, he talks too much. And, and sometimes you just need to let the, you know, let the setting kind of do it. I I don't know. And I understand he gets excited and he's into the whole thing, but it, it just could be me. And maybe I'm just grumpy because I'm watching Kansas city again and all that <laughs> stuff. All right. Well, hey, before we move on, yeah. I, we, we were talking about this motion thing last week, and I did find some numbers, which I thought were pretty interesting. And I just wanted to share them real quick. Some of this came from Seth Walder and ESPN stats and info, but they do a, a, a motion report okay. for the entire season, for the entire regular season. Um, where do you think the Browns ranked in terms of motion guys, having guys in motion at the snap out of 32 teams? Where do you think the Browns rank? In terms I, I, of have not, most I have to not least. looked at this. Um, just it's a total twentieth. That's not a bad guess. They were actually thirty-first in the league in having guys in motion at the snap, which I thought was really interesting. They only do it twelve point four percent of the time. Uh, and what Seth about, Walder, yeah. Pre, what about just for some perspective, yeah. I, would, I want to give you a little perspective here. But in twenty seventeen. NFL teams put a man in motion at the snap only 4% of the time. And the average in 2023 was 22%. So it's gone in six seasons. It's gone from 4% to 22% teams having a a guy in motion at the snap. So hardly at all to every five plays is really what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, And the top five teams that have the, the guys, guys in motion the most at the snap were the dolphins, the Rams, the 49ers, the Packers, the Lions and the Ravens, well, the Ravens are number six at 28.2%. Uh, and the Browns are at the bottom. The last three teams in terms of guys in motion at the snap were number 30 were the Cardinals, 31 was the Browns, and 32 was the Eagles. So, and again, that's from ESPN Stats and Info. They they track all this stuff on video. So I, I thought that was interesting. Like, you know how analytically driven the Browns are. I think when they see this number, they look at it and like, all right, most of the teams in that top five or ten are successful, and we probably need to look at ways to add some of this to create some mismatches. So we might see more of that, right, in 2024? Well, they want to redo everything on offense, that's for certain. Hmm. And you can't just say that um, you're not going to have Chubb for opening day, and let's just hope they get Chubb back at some point. And what I want, by the way, on Chubb, this is a, to build a contract – Really aim for 25. Get him some reps and everything in 24. Then he has another offseason to rebuild that knee and get him back in 25. Because I don't think they'll really know what they have in Chubb until 25. Um, so you have to, to your point, though, you know, create more motion and that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I really kind of 
bugs me to say this because it, it, we've been saying, well, does Deshaun like this? Does Deshaun want this? And even when Roberta and I were talking about the, some of the stuff, and she's not a big football. I'm not football is not my number one sport. I always am very upfront about that, but I pay a lot of attention to it. You know, she's just real casual. She loves basketball. Basketball's her thing. And but she just said, well, you know, they always talk about Deshaun. Well, what has he really done? I mean, to merit, in other words, that much influence on on things. And and I, and by the way, I hear I hear that from other fans with the emails. It's like, well. You know, remember the scripted plays thing that came up or some other was like, hey, you know, you've got to go out and really you got to prove it. And so uh, I just want them when Stefanski and, and Dorsey and whoever else is involved and Tommy Reese, I know there's a guy that the, the guy they brought in was the coordinator at Alabama and um, Notre Dame before that. He's a tight ends coach. He apparently is going to have a fair amount of say in, in this. Uh, that they just build the kind of offense that they think works for Deshaun. They could, this like they they could drive the, the build the race car. Deshaun could paint it whatever color he wants, but that engine and all that that's got to come from a coaching staff who's trying to you know take your driver and build the engine that you know the right type of tires to go around the turn. I know I'm probably there. I'm flashing back. To I love that metaphor. It's perfect. Na- yeah. NASCAR 1978 and the Greensboro Daily News. I was on that beat for like four <laughs> months where I knew nothing about this, but learned quite a bit on that part. You know how the driver is, he's not irrelevant, you know, and they build, you know, guys who took the turns better, or whatever. And there's all this strategy with tires and things like that. But in the end, just as important, was the guy that now he headed the was the main kind of motor guy, the engineer, and also the pit crew. So that's what that was how they put it together. You know, there are all these guys behind the scenes, behind the drivers. Well, they've got to do that in football and do it the right way. And sometimes the driver knows just enough to have everything wrong. Yeah, you know, I think it's a good analogy though, Terry. Yeah. Deshaun Watson comes to the sideline. He's like, hey, you know what? The handling's a little loose. Like. I, here's what I'm seeing. They're, yes. they're playing. They're playing press man on us, and right before the snap, then they're back. And like he's going to tell them how to tweak things. But you're right. He's not building the car. He's driving the car. Yeah. And giving them feedback. I think that's a really good analogy. So, um, all right, Terry, we got a couple of questions. I don't want us to run over here, but we do yeah, have a, a couple. Speaking of injured people, um, Dustin, this question is about Dustin Hopkins. And again, if you want to hit us with questions, comments, anything on the podcast, you can email us at sports at cleveland.com and put Terry's talking in the headline. This one is from Larry in Jacksonville. And Larry says, uh, Terry and Dave, quick question on the Browns kicker situation. Dustin Hopkins just had the best season for a Browns kicker. I don't think it's even close, even when Phil Dawson was here. But his first season in Cleveland ended the same way his last season in San Diego ended, Mm -hmm. unavailable because of a hamstring injury. Looking at some of the older kickers in the NFL, I noticed that there are kickers like Nick Folk when he was with the Patriots, Robbie Gould when he was with the 49ers, and Ryan Suckup when he was with the Buccaneers who did not kick off. They had punters who doubled as kickoff specialists. With Corey Bohorquez, a free agent, should the Browns prioritize finding someone like Jake Fox of the Lions or Jack Camarda of the Buccaneers? It seems like the best way to protect against Hopkins getting hurt again is to keep him off kickoffs. Probably easier than easier than telling him not to make a play after he kicks the ball. Love the podcast. Thanks, guys. And again, that's Larry and Jackson. But what do you think about that, Terry? Kicking is your specialty here. Do you think the Browns would be good? I mean, Bohork has had a great season. He's one of the best punters in the NFL last year. But in the interest of keeping 
uh, Hopkins healthy, would you want to find a guy who can punt and kick off? Or what do you think? I, I, I would in, just in general like that because here's the other reason. If you have that guy and Hopkins, who does have an injury history, not just the year before and this past year, but earlier in his career, then you're not ending up with what D'Anthony Bell say. Well, I kicked in the eighth grade. <laughs> or remember uh, Najoka, wow. I never really did kick, but I know I can. You're not down to that. You know, you're down to, well, you know, at least I kicked in college or whatever it was. So I would look at that, especially if they feel that Bajorquez is going to get a lot of money to go somewhere or something. And they, um, I don't mind skimping a little bit on price on the punter. I don't want to skip skimp on the kicker. You know, I, I so if I could get two for one and that, I'm, I'm for that. But I like the general idea of how do you protect Hopkins from getting hurt and if that's a way to just keep him off the field because uh, really the way it's played now it seems like most of these guys just kick it in the end zone anyway it comes out to the 25 yard line so yeah it's kind of a non-play yeah yeah all right well thanks for that letter Larry um, and we do have one more here Terry this one is kind of injury related i've been saving it because it, it, it's it had a little bit of less timeliness to it but this is from doug downing in sneeds ferry north carolina i don't know if you've ever been down there you, you spend a lot no, of time but doug wrote, doug wrote me about the weather when i, oh, had, okay. I believe it was him and one of my columns i said oh there was a strange yellow object in the sky this weekend had not seen <laughs> for a long time i was um, rumored to be the sun and he wrote you ought to come down here instead of being in all you know eight inches of snow and all the wind and rolling back up. We haven't had much of that. It just is gray and rainy all the time. So. Yep. Yeah. We're all in right. for another six so weeks. So Doug and here. I did the weather. Now what does Doug have on his mind? <laughs> all right. So I say this one, it's probably a month or so old, but Doug says, Hey Terry, I keep thinking that the Browns are, have had way too many serious injuries this season, but then I look around the league and it seems to be yep. an epidemic. My initial thought is, are the training staffs failing or could it be something else? Helmets continue to improve, but the other equipment continues to shrink or disappear altogether. In my era of football, the shoulder pads were huge. We wore hip pads, thigh pads, and knee pads. We also taped our ankles and knees to protect them. My question is, is the NFL ignoring the fact that limited or eradicated equipment is causing shoulder, knee, and ankle Achilles tendon injuries? Is this extra flexibility worth it? We've all seen this, Terry, guys without any pads, knee pads, especially kickers. Looks like they're wearing tights out there sometimes when they go out to play instead of uh, football pants. So, any any theories on whether the equipment and light speed small stuff is affecting anything? I'm going to let you handle that seriously. I haven't given any thought. Um, I just haven't. I I just think the guys are bigger and faster than mm -hmm. they used to be, and the collisions are harder. And they've done a lot of things to keep the game safe as possible, but. When you got a 250-pound linebacker running a 220-pound running back, like, you know, bad things can happen, right? Guys get stingers and, and, and shoulder injuries and all kinds of stuff. I'm trying to think of the injuries the Browns had this year, and some most of them were contact that I don't know the pads would have helped. I'm trying to think of some of the injuries. Hopkins was making a tackle. Uh, there was a lot of soft tissue stuff that didn't really yeah. impact the, the equipment, right? I'm trying to remember well, thing, who got Achille, hurt when. Achilles has nothing to do with equipment. As a guy who ripped one Achilles up and partially tore the other, it's primarily a wear and tear injury. You know, maybe you didn't stretch right or you didn't uh, build it up with certain um, 
kind of toll lift, that kind of weight stuff. But so that 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 doesn't fall into place. Um, I don't I don't have an Nick idea. Nick Chubb's injury, like nothing, no no knee pad would have saved that. He, no, he, the he angle got, that hit he came got in the, from. The angle. Yeah, the the thing is, it's just these guys just are so huge. Um, I remember, I want to say, I think Nebraska won the national title in '95, and Akron U the next year was roped into one of those money games. And Lee Owens, the coach at, at Akron, is was a good friend of mine. So I shadowed them. Like I went to their team meetings before halftime and watched that game from the sidelines. And it was looking at like the two lines and everything. Akron might even have been slightly bigger than Nebraska. But when that whistle blew and it, those guys were Nebraska, their, their big guys are like twice as fast as Akron. So when they hit people, to your point, you know, this is a classic physical mass versus velocity, and it was bang. And you just realize that's the difference a lot of times between, you know, probably uh, mediocre college, big time college to pros is, yeah, they're getting a little bigger. I mean, one of the things about Dewan Jones, your guy, is he has fast feet. You know, the basketball feet. I remember when Rod Senderoff had him in to, for a workout at Kent State when he recruited him to play center. He just kept saying, because I interviewed he said, my God, this guy's feet was unbelievable. You know, it, you would think he, you know, it's like, I don't like Kevin McHale or one of those kind of guys with the footwork like that. And, and he was, and he weighed even more, I think now than he does now. I mean, he was gigantic. So that's what they're just such freakish athletes at such big size. All right. Yeah, now I'll, ask, I'll ask you this though. All right. These pec injuries, can that be because they're training too hard? In other words, too much weight, all that in the training. Room. See, I don't know. Yeah, you could have a, you could do an in-depth study on pectoral injuries in the NFL. There's been a lot of them. I think yep. these guys are benching a lot of weight and yep. lifting a lot of weight. And I, yeah, it's I have no idea. I'm not a trainer or a doctor, but it is it is it is weird. I do think a lot of guys are tight in that chest a little bit when they get their mm-hmm. arm pulled back during a game. Maybe it's too much for that for that to handle. But uh, I think it's an interesting question. I, I they've done things in terms of the helmets and the way guys can hit each other. I, I think they should make the guys have pads in their pants. I do. I just think it's just a way to protect the NFL and protect the players. Uh, not necessarily in the order, probably the opposite order, protect the players first and protect the NFL. But um, no, yeah, anyway, but it's an work, interesting it, question, Doug. It thanks for that. Together, no, David, it works together because the NFL does not want its good players hurt. It hurts the product. True. So yeah. I'll say it, it, they both have equal weight in this, and that's why the NFL should have the – um, just the force behind themselves to say, no, this is what we need to do. Like they've done it with try to stop the late hits on the quarterbacks and things. Well, let's look at the equipment. So, all right. We both probably right. training 101 there, but we took a I shot so. at it. We did. Thanks for that question. And uh, we, we love hearing from, this is a good time of year to get into this kind of stuff when there's not games and everything. So, I'm sure we'll get some more. And again, hit us at sports at cleveland.com and uh, we'll see what questions we can get to down the road. So, all right, you want to take a break here, Terry, real quick? Yep, sounds good. All right, well, we will talk some Cavs and some Guardians when we get back. Paul Hoynes had a story today on cleveland.com asking 10 important questions for the Guardians. And I pulled a few of those I want to ask you about, Terry. And then I also am going to ask Terry if he thinks the Cavs can win the East. 
given what we see going into the All-Star break. So we will get into that and more when we come back on Terry's Talking. Hey, we're back on Terry's Talk. Terry's Talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluto back for the second half of the show. We're going to get into the Cavaliers, who lost last night, surprisingly, but they are still the number two seed in the East. They're five and a half games behind Boston in the Eastern Conference at 35 and 17. Boy, they're playing 673 basketball this season, Terry. That's on pace for 55 wins. And I, I yep. think early in the season we were talking about whether they would get to 50 or not, and they've they've gone over that pace now. But uh, we haven't really done a podcast since the trade deadline last week. I don't think, and the Cavs have not made a move. And this is the roster they're going to have going to the playoffs. How do you feel about this roster, and do they have enough talent to win the East or at least get to the Eastern Conference Finals? What do you think? Well, I, I had no interest in making a big move of any sort, uh, not just simply because they're winning, but because JB was going to have to bring back Garland and Evan Mobley and work that into a rotation that already had been successful. So uh, – he was going to do some tinkering, and you didn't really need somebody kind of from the outside. Uh, I've watched him at times do some of the things that I like to see, which is he's dividing up Mitchell and Garland. Not totally, but I'd have to get the breakdown on how many minutes they're out there together. I bet it's not more than 12 or 15 minutes together uh, in a game. Mobley and, and Allen, the same thing. And that really does give you, while you may start all those guys together, you break them up. You always have a lot of talent on the floor, uh, almost regardless of the game situation. And when you're sitting there going, I mean, I'm getting emails, of, you know, why isn't Craig Porter Jr. playing? And I like Craig Porter Jr., but where? When? Um, you know, Sam Merrill, I'd, I'd like to see a little more, but O'Coral's playing so well and taking those minutes. Struess is, and Dean Wade have these incredible plus minuses when they're on the floor. They make the team better. So it's, this is a nice problem. Now, you know, somebody's going to get hurt. You know, Wade was out the other night. Um, so I, in terms of not making a move, they, they've, the moves are being made are these guys coming back and then trying to, to work them in. Yeah, and I, I don't have this number handy, but I, the Cavs aren't just winning. Like, the, and this goes going back to my original question. Like, yeah. they're blowing teams out like on a regular basis, and I think that their margin of victory is is like among the best of the last ten or fifteen years in the NBA in terms. And they've had a, a weak schedule of opponents lately, but you don't just beat NBA teams by fifteen, twenty points on a regular basis unless you've got some really good talent that can find a way to do that every time you play. That's a good sign for Cavs fans, right? Sure it is. And you also have a um, team that's still young. You know, fans, I periodically do that. I was talking to myself and fans, don't you get tired of saying they're young? Well, they are. I mean, when they're starting the, the regular five, you know, with Mobley and Allen and Struess and um, those guys, people are 27 and younger. So, I think the oldest guy right now, because Tristan is suspended, so the oldest active player, I believe, is Niang at 30. And that's why this is not, you know, championship or bust. Kobe said that. And I know hanging over it is what is Donovan Mitchell going to want to do in the offseason. Well, you know, even if they end up having to trade Mitchell, boy, I'd hate to see that because he wants out. But they've got players. They do. And they could get more. So this doesn't mean ignore this year. You always want to grab the chances as they're as they're available. 
But I look at it, you know, Milwaukee's trying to find their way. Boston is very good, but they've not been able to really put that championship thing together for them with the with 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 the with their makeup of their roster. Um and besides, at this time a year ago, who thought Miami would have been in the finals? Now the Knicks scare me. And the Knicks scare me again. Uh, you know, for the Cavs, I think it's still a tough matchup for them. They may be more equipped to handle it, but that's a team that does scare me. But you you seem to think the Cavs are good enough to make it to the Eastern Conference Finals with the talent. It's just a matter of doing it. Yeah, I do. Right now, right. I do. Um, I, because they have, you know, some experience on some of the other guys. I like how Mobley's playing more physical. Uh, Struess clearly is a veteran that knows how to handle situations. Because even when he was shooting poorly, um, if you look at Struess's performance in the playoffs last year from like round to round, sometimes he shot really well and other times he barely shot 30% on threes. But he was on the floor for those 25 to 30 minutes all the time anyway. Why? Because we see it. He's he's just a tough SOB out there. And, you know, you want him. He is a he's a playoff-type postseason um, guy that's just been around. And I think Niang, I know he didn't play well the other day, but uh, he brings a little of that. I mean, a lot of times, you know, he's out there being the backup power forward. And he's having to go out there, and I, he's pushing guys around. He's stepping on their foot. He's throwing elbows and claiming he got fouled himself. I mean, he's really kind of an old school guy with his ball spot, and he you know, doesn't run. He rumbles down the court. But that kind of stuff could play well and help you in the postseason. If you look at some of Niang's stats in the postseason, um, they've been very good. A friend of mine loves um, – the Sixers and watches them all the time. He's a New Jersey guy. And his thing was always that he's always thought in the postseason that Niang was underutilized because he can make shots from the outside. And he is in his own kind of unique. He's sort of like some pickup guy, ball player, you know, out there. He just plays his own kind of game, pushing guys around. But that works in short doses. So it's just to tie this all together, Terry, we, we talked a little bit last week about Donovan Mitchell's MVP chances, and I, he th- I think he was 10th in the odds, the Vegas odds, when we mm-hmm. looked at it. Chris Fedor, our colleague, has been writing about that Donovan Mitchell, everybody's like, oh, is he leaving for New York? He doesn't want to be here. And he is playing <laughs> like the leader of this team, and he wants to be here. And the other thing that I think is really interesting, I think the Cavs, when you get eliminated from the playoffs, it's one thing. When you get eliminated and you get your toughness called into question and, mm-hmm. and whether you have enough grit, that's a whole other thing. And I really feel like this Cavs team, one of the reasons they can win two or three playoff series this year is because that's driving them. Like they, they, they can win 19 out of 23 or whatever, but until they erase the you guys are soft narrative from last year, like they're not going to rest. <laughs> And Donovan Mitchell encapsulates that. And I think he has taken that mantle on himself to like, we are going to prove that we're tough this year. And I'm going to prove that I'm tough and erase all these people calling us soft and everything. And we're not going to rest till we do it. I think this is going to be the the thing that pushes them to wherever they end up, but it's going to be, it's going to be much more than it was than a first round exit. That's, that's what I'm seeing in this team. And also Mitchell just empowered. You know, this has been my theme from even before they began to do it. Give him the ball. 
Make it be his team. He is a he, you can just listen to him. He he's about the right stuff. He's a good guy. So say, all right, this is your time. You're right at the sweet spot of your career where you could do this. You're 27. 27 was when Jordan won his first title. 27 is when LeBron won his first title. So, and you've been through some wars and some disappointments, and you've had big regular seasons both in Cleveland and Utah, and watched them peter out. You know, you've learned stuff from that. So go for it. And this team will follow you. And I love what they didn't do in the playoffs last year, and it was driving me nuts. I see a much better approach to team rebounding with the guards getting in there and everybody else, and Donovan leading the way to help on the boards, help the big guys on the boards. Um, especially when you're facing a team like New York, that's going to go after and pulverize your big guys. And then New York was turning around. I remember uh, – What's his name? Hart for New York. I think he averaged like six and a half rebounds or something in the playoffs. You got to come on, man. Get in there. So, it's, so Terry, we, I pulled this quote from last night's loss, and I don't know that we would have seen this from Donovan Mitchell last year, but I want to mm-hmm. read this quote for you real quick after they lost to the Sixers. And again, the, the all-star break is right around the corner. Guys tend to get senioritis sometimes, and, and without Embiid there last night, I think that probably all contributed, not to make excuses. But Donovan Mitchell after the game said, I think we're always going to give ourselves a shot, and I don't mean to say this in a harsh way, but we kind of deserve to lose this, lose this game just based off, off of how we started. We came out as if, one, they were going to lay down and just let us continue to do what we do, but I think we also didn't put forth effort, especially defensively. We didn't come out the right way. And the basketball gods don't reward you for that. Been playing great basketball. This is nothing to overreact to and get upset at. But I think the biggest thing is just coming out with the right mentality. We hadn't done that in months. So for us, it's continuing to sustain that and not getting bored with success. Well, we wouldn't you know, have heard that last year from Donovan Mitchell, right? No, and and you know I spent a lot of my life in African American churches, and then and if he would have stood up on the basketball pulpit and said that, everybody would yell, "Preacher, brother, tell the truth," and that's it. And it, really, I think that he feels that he now has the credibility, and last year still was his first year in Cleveland, and he was getting you know trying to not say just fit in because when you're a star, you don't fit in. You want, you want to make sure that you lead, but he had established himself as being a big time player so that the guys here know it day after day. Cause you could watch a player, you could play against them, uh, you know, four times or six times a year in the NBA, but you don't know him until you see, you know, how does he practice all these other things? Well, now he's established his credentials. And Terry, you were the first one, and this again just shows your wealth of basketball knowledge. I, I, you were the first one to really point out the Michael Jordan, Donovan Mitchell comparison. Yeah. And that's got me thinking, like, what would it take for him to win the MVP this year? And I, I think there's a couple things. I think one is the Cavs have to take over first place in the East by the end of the regular season. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that has to happen is they have to get on national TV more. And I, I know there's not, the, the schedule doesn't flex the way it does in the NFL. But um, the Cavs just announced today, I think it came out around noon, that they're going to have five games on free TV for fans on Channel 43. And that's not going to move the needle with Donovan Mitchell, but there's going to be three games in March and then a back-to-back in April that's going to be on Channel 43 so everybody can see those games if they don't have Bally. But the other thing is I think the Cavs have the one of – they're on TNT. TNT is the preeminent place to be if you're an NBA team, not just because of the game and the TNT broadcast – but you got the, the show with Shaq and and, mm-hmm. and and Charles Smith and Barkley and, um, you know, 
that is what that's where viral clips come from when Charles says something or Shaq says something about the Cavs. And if they if we see like some flex scheduling where the Cavs get on more TNT games and they move into first place, I think Donovan Mitchell could get into the conversation and maybe finish in the top three in the MVP voting. But like without that national platform, it's going to be hard. And he's having a great season, right? What he's averaging 28.3 points a game. And he's fourth in the league in scoring. But, like, if you don't have that national conversation going, it's going to be hard for him, I think. But he deserves better. Yeah. And also the fact is it's Cleveland, and they lost in the first round of the playoffs. And that's the narrative, that, as you said, that uh, and he said hangs that. over them. Yeah. And that the, hangs over them. But my thing always was the way you, you know, prepare in the regular season doesn't mean you have to win the most games. But the way you prepare in the regular season will determine – you know, what happens in the playoffs, especially now that that group last year got a really good idea what it was like. And they had a they had a rough matchup. The Knicks are just a bad matchup for them. Um, now, you will get a bad matchup again. So you can't just go down that road and say, well, it's a bad matchup, too bad. We're, that's our excuse. Um, I like on the TV thing, they should have five to ten. Well, they got eighty-two games on TV, so you get five to ten there. And baseball should have ten to twenty. Yeah, which is not surprising, Terry. Which team do you think is on TNT the most this season? Yeah, the so, Lakers. You know, Lakers. Lakers number course. one. Yeah, yeah. so but they're on I, fifteen times, and the Cavs are on three times. So um, well, yes. But what I Sorry, meant, though, sometimes I care more about the locals than I do about the national stuff, and I. And, you know, the fans, is, I hear from all the ones that the streaming things, and I, and I get it. It's frustrating if, uh, you know, you don't have that. And, uh, I mean, I had to work around just to kind of get direct TV set up in here now because the other service I had was really bad. And just so I can make sure I got the ballets thing. And But nonetheless, you want even some of your fans who maybe don't have much of a cable situation at all, where they can get these games and on the local TV. And it isn't much to ask if you play 82 games and you put five on, well, you know, what percentage is that? Something like 6% of your games. And if you play 162 games and you put 12 on, you're still under 10% of your games and the rest are still going on the cable. But nonetheless, you're exposing a different part of your audience who would love to see the games. Do it. This is stupid. Do it. Yeah, so you're talking about you got to have a free level for people locally yeah. to watch, and then the national level is a whole other thing. So I think yeah, that's, right. that, that's yeah. all part of it. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Just to, for there, and of course, you know what works for the NFL. Everything's on free TV. Yep. I mean, I know they have the Peacock game once in a while or whatever, but even isn't it true? Like when the Browns had one of those games, it was still locally on one of those channels, I believe. Yeah, and the more you, like you said, Terry, the more you're seeing, the more fans you gain. There's yep. no, there's a and direct you correlation. Care, so. You know, you always say take care of your home court or home field. Take care of the home fans. Give them something. Well, this is a good move by the Cavs. They put these on Channel 43. I think people really appreciate it. And uh, I, I do think we're going to see the Cavs on national TV more. I think that, I think TNT is going to make some switches, and we'll see what that does in terms of Donovan Mitchell. Um, Hey, before we move on, Terry, I, you, you had a, the, another great comparison of Victor Wembanyama and uh, Ralph Sampson. Did you see mm-hmm. what Wemby did last night? No, what did he do? <laughs> He did a triple-double last night, and one of the triples was blocked shots. Jeez. <laughs> and this was a great stat. I just wanted to pass it along. It comes from uh, Jordan Howenstein of Spurs PR. 
He says Wembenyama is now the fourth rookie in NBA history to record a triple-double with blocks being one of the stats. The first one was David Robinson in 1990. Uh, Victor Wembenyama last night. David Robinson in, uh, I already said, 1990. Ralph Sampson in 1983, yeah. who you pointed out as a comparable. And then Mark Eaton in 1983. So, again, the four guys are Wemby, David Robinson, Ralph Sampson, and Mark Eaton. But Eat, you don't see a... Eaton, huh? That's interesting yeah. there because he could barely score ten points some nights. I saw him. <laughs> I mean, he's like seven foot four, yeah, three hundred. He's huge. He would never play in the, this game with all the three pointers and the up and down. Uh, I mean, he would just be some guy off the bench. But he really helped them. You know, he was there during the uh, uh, Stockton and Malone days and Hornacek and that, and because. He didn't really have to do much other than get in people's way and in there. But I that's that's the probably Webinyana it'd be fascinating just to watch where that career goes. He's a different dude, man. It's really mm-hmm. it's really something. So all right, let's move to the Guardians, Terry. We're, we want to keep on schedule here. Uh Paul Hines, our colleague, had ten questions up on the site today. Ten Guardians questions. Uh and I wanted to run a few and past you because I know you have thoughts. one of them was who's gonna start in center field? Oh, that's easy. Uh, Esteban Florio. Really? Okay. Cause, so you think he'll be able to move in there and take over from Miles Straw in terms of they starting and playing more games? They want him to move in there and take over from Miles Straw. And I've learned that about things. when, when I, Unless he goes 0 for 20 or something. But when they want you to do this because they're sick of the other guy, you're going to get the first crack to do it. They traded for this guy from the Yankees. I believe he's out of options. And so he's going to do it. They are tired of straw. They see straw now as a fourth outfielder or whatever. So next. All right. And <laughs> Florial did hit 28 home runs last season at AAA. And, and still 20 the Yankees bases, organization. I, I think yep, he still yep. – yeah. All right. Here's another question from the Paul Hoyne story. Terry, who is going to start at shortstop? Oh, I think Jimenez will in the beginning. I, I mean, Excuse me. Um, Gabriel Arias. Oh, yeah, Arias. Yeah, Arias because they want him. You know, Jimenez is at second. What I was thinking, though, is they love Brito. Juan Brito, that's the guy they got in the Nolan Jones shirt. Now, Brito will not start in the big leagues. He'll start at AAA. But Brito will be, I think, groomed to play second, and then Jimenez will switch to short. So that's why I believe they'll go with Arias, who they, they like, with Jimenez at second. And then if Brito hits like they think he will and Arias continues – how the heck does a guy who bats right-handed bats like 84 against lefties? I'm not kidding. It was less than 100, and he had a bunch of at-bats. So, anyway, that would be the move that's coming. And, and we, we've heard about Jimenez taking grounders at short and stuff over the last couple of years, I think. But when you, if you make that move, you want to make it and then leave it, right? You don't want yes. to be moving him back and forth because he's one of your most productive players. So He's, that's and, how you would see that playing out. Make the right. make the move when it's the right time and leave him at short if you're going to make also, it. And also, I mean, him and as, as a not a good second baseman. He's a great second baseman, and kind of I'm about second baseman like I'm about kickers. I mean, I really watched it all this stuff and played it played it badly, but played it. And his feet, his ability there, but nonetheless, uh, if Brito is the type of player that not just the Guardians have told me, but uh, a scout from. Um, uh, another American League team who watched him told me, I mean, I think this guy can come up and uh, be an impact hitter right away. He's, he walks a lot, singles, doubles. He's going to, you know, he's young. He's going to grow into uh, 
uh, his for some power, and uh, they, you know, that's why they were willing to trade Nolan Jones. They wanted they wanted this guy, and so we'll see. Remember, that's a key thing. What do they want now? So they go back to who's who do they who's going to play center field? Who do they want to play center field? They want Florio to play center field. You know what do they want? They eventually want Brito to take over at second, and that means him and as a short. But in the short term, what do they want? They want to make sure that they were right about Arias one way or the other. In other words, the people that think he'll never hit, let's make sure we're right about that. And the people who think if he just gets some more at bats and plays. Because uh, he is good defensively, that that power that he shows periodically that'll come out. And if that happens, they'll just find figure out another way of working the Brito thing. All right, and the last one, Terry, can the Guardians win the AL Central? Oh boy, <laughs> I'm going to decline to answer until I go to spring training in the middle. All of All right, month. fair enough. We'll because ask you I after just, you get back. <laughs> I've got to see. I mean, I'm talking about guys I haven't seen. And the other thing that does worry me, David, is I want to see what the starting rotation is. You know, remember last year, uh, McKenzie, I want to say it was right as I showed up. So that was the middle of March. All of a sudden, he's like, he's supposed to, he's fine. And then he's not. And then he's out for four months or whatever it was. What did he pitch, 12 innings or something last year? So, and we got to see what, what Bieber is. So that's why I have real concerns, uh, um, not just the natural scoring runs, but this uh, rotation, you know, how will it hold up? And then they're going to try to really rebuild their bullpen um, because they just wore out class a last year. I have to admit, I've been amused about these um, rumors about class a being traded. Class a has such a wonderful contract for any team. I'm sure teams are calling, but it's like the, the guardians be out of their mind to get rid of this guy, unless you're getting some, Hall of players in return. Um, you just need to take some of the burden off of him. Yeah, yeah, and get get him to the ninth inning and shorten shorten his appearances a little bit and his pitches. Yeah. Get his pitch countdown. So, all right, Terry, we will hit you with that question when you get back from spring training. We'll see okay. how you feel because there are so you're right. There are so many unanswered questions uh, that we don't know right now. So, all right, we have a couple of letters. These we're getting down to the last one. I think we have about ten of these left. Um, but we, these were questions dating back to our hundredth episode where we asked fans to write in about where they're from, why they're a Cleveland sports fan, and this first one is from from Howard Butensky. And Howard says, hey, guys, growing up in New Jersey, I, unlike my friends, had no allegiance to the New York teams. We had a rotary antenna, and the first game I watched around <laughs> 1953 or 54 was Detroit against Cleveland. It was a black-and-white TV, and I thought the Browns had nicer uniforms, so I rooted for them until they signed Deshaun Watson. <laughs> oh, well, I <laughs> now, you know. Now I observe, he says. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Many years later, since my feeling about New York as well as Philadelphia hadn't changed, I went all in on the Indians slash Guardians and Cavs, a decision I don't regret. They are both franchises you can enjoy rooting for. This vignette would have been much more relevant in the middle of Brown season, but there's only so much we can control as fans. In the late 1950s, early 60s, the football giants had a great defense. Guys like Sam Huff, Rosie Greer, Andy Robustelli, Jim Patton, etc. The offense, not so great. Supposedly in one game where the defense created yet another turnover and were coming off the field, Robustelli hollered at the offense, hold him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, never early in a year. That was, like, I think, where the Browns were. It's like, 
just like in that Pittsburgh game, just stop uh-huh. giving them points. Because <laughs> remember they gave up 14 points. Just don't give them any. We'll see if we'll, we can get some. We'll take care of the rest. So anyway, thanks for that letter, Howard. It was great to finally be able to get that one in. And our last one today is from Joe Amodio, and Joe actually found a, a clip he sent along of a, of a Cleveland, I think it was the plane dealer from 1983 of a story he had written, and he says, here's my story as a remote Cleveland sports fan in list format. I was born in 1956, a year later than Terry. That's right, Terry, right? That's correct. You were 50, 55, right? Followed the Indians since the 1960s. Funny how I can remember many of that era's players. Mm-hmm. My dad had a store in Shaker Heights and a customer who had season tickets at the old stadium, second row next to the Indians' dugout, and would occasionally give him tickets for us to use. I still have my two foul balls from that seat. The season <laughs> ticket holder was Dr. Thomas, one of the eye doctors for Herb Score after his injury. Oh, wow. My order of team preference to win a championship would be Guardians, Browns, and Cavs. I will take any one, though. I've been a remote fan since 1979, since moving to Chicago for work. The best announcing team at that time in Chicago was Jimmy Pearsall and Harry Carey for the White Sox. (laughs) An underappreciated team that got overshadowed when Harry moved to the beloved Chicago Cubs. Note my sarcasm. I've seen every Chicago team win a championship while living here, and it means nothing for my sports satisfaction. Needless to say, the 2016 World Series is still a painful memory. Too many T-shirts, hats, license plates, holders, etc., declaring 2016 Chicago Cubs World Championships to be seen. Finally, I was cleaning out old papers, and I saved the PD articles written in the early 1980s. And one of them was asking, is Cleveland a good sports town? I saw the article, and it was about the fear of the Indians and Cavs potentially leaving Cleveland and the Uh Browns being stable. How ironic is what happened later with the Browns leaving town. Enjoy the podcast and keep it up for the next 100-plus, you guys. And, again, that is from Joe Amodio, and Joe's writing from Chicago. Thanks, Terry. Um, I mean, thanks, Joe, for writing that. Hey, Terry questions. So, uh, yeah, man, it's so funny. I grew up watching Jimmy Pearsall and Harry Carey announcing White Sox games on like WSNS, which was Channel 44. It wasn't even one of the main stations. It was probably like Channel 43 here. But those guys were the funniest broadcast team I ever saw to a game. They were something else. He would come into the – I was doing the Indians then for the PD. Sorry to believe anybody ever did them before Hoynes, but I did. And – he would come in there, and it's like he was like almost unhinged. I mean, he would just, <laughs> and they just get into. I went to this restaurant, and this, you know, this woman said this, and next thing you know, I'm arguing her about the Cubs, and the, I'm like, who asked you? You know, or just it was. Well, Harry it was used to funny, but it was just. I mean, in other words, he didn't just turn it on in the booth. He carried it out in between innings or before the game. He just kept going. Yeah, yeah. And and Jimmy Pearsall, like his famous quote was like, I'm crazy and I have the papers to prove it. I think yeah, that was right. one of his yeah, quotes. What, yeah. But um but Harry was drinking Falstaff at the time, Harry Carey <laughs> instead of Budweiser when he was doing the White Sox. And so he would be drinking Falstaff during the game and then Jimmy Pearsall was just Jimmy Pearsall once he he wanted to race Greg Luzinski. He said I'm faster <laughs> than him. <laughs> and like Bill Veck, who owned the White Sox back in the seventies after he uh, gave up ownership mm-hmm. of the Indians, put a stop to it because he didn't want to have one of his players to be embarrassed but yeah, yeah those are the days anyway nobody well, wants to hear about well, chicago I stuff you, but... well, no i will tell this is a chicago slash cleveland story so <laughs> i remember um i'm covering uh was either the orioles or the tribe doesn't matter but it's during a rain delay in chicago in old comiskey park bill vick comes out he would come out and just kind of sit so he's sitting there 
uh, talking to us and he puts, you know, he had a wooden leg, you know, he puts, so he puts this up on the, uh, on the, the, the desk, like in the press box, he's telling stories, he's smoking cigarettes. As he would finish his cigarette, he would put it out on his leg and then toss <laughs> oh, the, man. And toss the <laughs> butt like off to the side into this, and, like just get it dumping his, like, on the floor or something. And light uh, up uh, so there you go. One of a kind. One of a kind. They don't make owners like that me, anymore. I could not have made that up. That is it. It's, it's, it's a true I totally story. It. And I have the vivid memory to prove it, uh, and if you could, you could have put me under any lie detector, and I'm sure, I don't know if Hoynes was around then. I know Sheldon Oker, I think, was, and they probably all would have that. So, and crazy to think that he was the owner of the Indians when they won their last World Series. Yeah, uh, back yeah. in 1948. It was a very interesting some career. time, David, because see, he was a World War II vet. My dad would talk about this, and then when he bought the, the team right after the war, um, he would go through the stands and talk to that the power of his promotion, but also the, a young man back from the war. And that time Cleveland was like the sixth or seventh biggest market in the country, you know, the best location in the nation, all that. There was just this feeling like in Cleveland and Vec exemplified that, that things can happen here that are special. And they were in 48, they were. So, and, and, you know, he had the, the exploding core scoreboard and the fireworks and all kinds of stuff. So, I have such a soft spot for Vec, for one, having met him, but also just because of the stories my father told. Yeah, he was something else. And his son was a great baseball promotion person, too. He really had great ideas. So, All right, Terry, that is going to wrap it up for us. Anything else you want to get into real quick? No, that'll do it. All right. Um, hey, again, if you want to sign up for Terry's newsletter, you can go to cleveland.com slash newsletters and just click on the box. It takes like a minute. You'll get everything that Terry writes. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We appreciate you. We will text and talk to you next week on Terry's Talking.